Um, so, uh, I, love, I love the old illustration. You might, have, you might have heard this. I think it was from a, maybe an American preacher back in the 50s or something, I think, that, that maybe first came up with, uh, came up with it. But it's, it's kind of been retold. It's been updated uh, uh, sometimes uh, over the decades. But it's about a man who fell into a pit. I don't know if you've, you've heard this before, but a, a, man, uh, a man fell into a pit and, um, and he, he couldn't get out. A subjective person came along and said, really feel for you down there in that pit. An objective person came along and said, yes, it's logical that somebody was going to fall into that pit. Um, a self-righteous person came along and said, only bad people fall into pits. Um, a self-pitying person came along and said, you haven't seen anything till you've seen my pit. Uh, and Confucius said, if you'd listened to me, you wouldn't have been in that pit. Uh, a Buddha said, your pit is really only a state of mind. A realist said, now that is a pit. A mathematician calculated the dimensions of the pit. A scientist calculated the load necessary to get him out of the pit. A geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata while he was in the pit. Uh, a news reporter came along and wanted the exclusive story on the pit. A man from the Inland Revenue wanted to know if he was paying taxes on the pit. Jesus took the man by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. And uh, I, I, love that. I love that little story, partly because it's kind of funny in places, I quite like that. Um, but actually because it's a great little illustration of what Jesus is all about, which is he's about rescue. So, so that little illustration reminds me of Psalm 40. Do you know Psalm 40? I, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. That's the psalmist's testimony, isn't it? When he was stuck in the pit, in, in the mud and the mire of his sin, then God lifted him out and, and put him back on a solid footing. It's what he does, and it's what we're going to see this morning in this second half of John chapter 3. So if you've got John chapter 3 uh, open, you're going to find that really helpful because we, we, uh, we look through it. Somebody tell me, if you haven't got it open, somebody tell me the page number so that um, we, can, we can find that uh, easily. That would be really good. 888, is that right? So 888, John chapter 3. Um, and uh, it'd be really helpful to, uh, to, to have that open because uh, what we've done actually this week and last week, we, we, took, a, uh, we took a little two-week break, didn't we, from Ollie's been preaching through 2 Corinthians. We've had this little two-week dip last week and this week into chapter 3 of, of John's Gospel. And, and John has already been telling us in, in his Gospel, in his book, hasn't he, about who Jesus is, which is that he's God's coming king. So, so chapter 1 describes him, if you remember chapter 1 of John, describes him as the word made flesh. In other words, he's God himself who's come to, to dwell in the flesh with his people. Uh, and then chapter 2 describes him as the, the Messiah, which means God's promised king, the one who will restore us to God again, something that's pictured in chapter 2 as being like a, like a banquet, like a wedding feast. 
Um, and, and then he's described in the rest of chapter 2 as the, like the judging king and also the revolutionary king. So the one with God's authority to judge and to cleanse the temple, which he does in, in chapter 2. And also the one who's come to fulfill everything that the temple stood for. To, to bring in a whole new way of, of both knowing God and being made right with God. So we've seen those things in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And, and having been told that Jesus is God's promised king, his Christ, or his his Messiah, we then started asking, as we looked at the first half of chapter 3 last week, well, if Jesus is the king, then who gets into his kingdom? And how? How does that happen? And we saw that Jesus' answer to that is that the only way, look, verse 3 of chapter 3, the only way is to be born again which we discovered, is to have our sins washed away and to have God's Spirit within us to transform our hearts and give us a fresh start, something that God himself does in us as we turn and trust in Jesus for ourselves. This was mind-bending news for Nicodemus here in in chapter 3 because he thought that all his religious credentials... You know, as a Pharisee, as a pillar of the community, that all of those things would be enough to save him. But Jesus says, no, you must be born again. Your, your, your sin, if you like, has put you in a pit of your own making, and you can't get out by yourself. You can't rescue yourself, no matter what advice you've been given, whether it's by a Buddhist or a realist or a geologist. <laughs> no, your only hope, actually, is for God himself to come down and rescue you. To, to reach down into the pit and, and lift you out and rescue you from his, his judgment on your sin. In other words, it's by believing in him. That's the thing that's key to entry into his kingdom. If you want entry into God's kingdom, you've got to come God's way. And that is through faith in Jesus and his rescue plan on the cross. And so now, having told us that we get into God's kingdom through faith in Jesus and his rescue plan, what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 3 is, is, uh, uh, and the remainder of the chapter in fact, um, is about the rescue, both the rescue and the rescuer. So let's have a look first of all in verses 16 to 21 at God's rescue. Rescue first and then rescue rescuer. And, and you know, uh, we've, we've just read it together, this section starts with maybe the most famous sentence in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's an amazing sentence, isn't it? Uh, Martin Luther called it the Bible in miniature. <laughs> Um, And it tells us straight away, doesn't it, that God has sent his son into the world so that we wouldn't perish. You see that? And, And then actually, if you look at the next verse, verse 17, he says that God hasn't come in order to condemn the world, but in order to save it or to rescue it. And so it's obvious, isn't it, that according to Jesus, there's a problem that we need rescuing from. And that is connected with there being a sense in which we are perishing. So so the the question then is, in what sense are we perishing and so in need of rescue? Well, the Bible makes it very clear 
that the whole of humanity has a very serious problem, and that problem is that we reject our maker and, and our ruler. You, you can see this, can't you? Even at the beginning, the very beginning of the Bible, just, just read the first couple of chapters of, of Genesis, the book of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, and you'll see that God made us to be in a relationship with him, a, a close personal friendship with the God of the universe. That's what he intends for us. And yet the terrible truth it is that humanity has pushed God out of the picture and we've decided that we want to rule the world ourselves instead. And that is, friends, exactly what we do, isn't it? None of us want to be told how to live our lives, do we? And we certainly don't want God telling us either, e- even though he has every right to, to do so because he is God and, and we are not. But we don't want it. We're essentially selfish aren't we? We want to run our lives and we want to run our world, you know, in our own way, on our own terms, and with no reference to the God who made us in the first place. And of course, not only do we make a horrendous mess of that, we, we mess up our world and we mess up our lives as well, but it's, it's also giving God a great slap in the face in the process, isn't it? You know, maybe you've... Um, Maybe you've sat in front of the news sometimes or newspaper or something like that, your news feed on your phone or something, and you've, you've looked at what's going on in the world and you've thought to yourself, what's wrong with our world? Well, friends, Jesus here says that it's us that is wrong with the world. In that, we mess up our lives and we mess up our world because we reject God and his rule, and his design for us, and we strike out on our own instead. And and actually, you know, generally speaking, God lets that happen. You know, he gives us the responsibility to make those decisions. If, If we want to live in God's world without God, then by and large, he'll let us do that. But But of course, there are consequences to us doing that, aren't there? God is still a just God. And, and so our unjust decision to reject him will have to be paid for when God's time of reckoning comes. And the Bible is very clear that it will. And, and the, the punishment from God that will come then is to be separated from him forever, which, of course, is exactly what Uh, is is nothing more than God giving us what we've said we want, isn't it? If we've said to God, God, I don't want you in my life. You know, I'm I'm okay by myself, thanks. I've got no interest in you. I'm, I'm quite happy to live in your world as though you weren't there. Well, God's punishment for that is to give us what we ask for and separate himself from us forever. But friends, that will be an unbelievably terrible eternity. In fact, it's what the Bible describes as hell. And and it's an existence where God himself, and so therefore every good thing, is eternally absent. Friends, that is the problem of the world. And so the problem that we face and have to reckon with as well. The, The problem is us. It's the fact that we've ignored God in his world and we'll need to face the consequences of doing so. And that's a massive problem, isn't it? 
We're perishing, Jesus says in verse 16. We're heading for an eternity without God. In, in other words, we're in a pit of, of our own making, and we need rescuing. Which is why these verses are such brilliant news, isn't it? Because what they tell us is that despite our rejection of God, God still wants to do something to rescue us. Have a look at that verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God still loves the world? That, that despite, despite the unbelievable arrogance in us assuming that we can live in his world as though he wasn't even there, he loves us. And what's more, he's shown his love for us by what he's done for us. He gave his only son. That, that is to, to die on a cross for, for you and, and for me. So that we should not perish but have eternal life. See, friends, it was on the cross that the, the, the punishment, the condemnation that you and I deserve for our rejection of God was taken by Jesus in our place. That's what the cross is all about. God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die in your place in order to pay for your sin so that you don't need to be condemned for your sin, even though that's what your sin deserves, but can be forgiven for it instead. In other words, he died when it should have been you and I that died. He died so that we could go free. Now, that's, that's what verse uh, 17 is saying, isn't it? Have a look. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And it was on the cross where that saving, that rescue, took place. And, and you see, friends, that's how serious our rejection of God is, and that's how deep God's love for us is. Did you know that you were loved by God that much? Did, did you know that? You are, you know, <laughs> whether, whether you feel it or not. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross so that you can be forgiven and restored to God again. You've done nothing to deserve it, and neither have I, because we've pushed him away and rejected him and, and lived for ourselves instead and dug ourselves into a pit of our own making from which we, we desperately need rescue. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that it's God who has rescued us. And he's done it by sending his son to die in our place. So that we, the people who have rejected him, can be forgiven and can be offered a fresh start and can be given eternal life in his kingdom. So then, how do we respond to God's rescue? Well, we can either accept it or reject it, can't we? And actually, you can see both of those responses look in verse 18. Have a look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son 
of God. So there's, there's kind of two, two choices presented to us there, isn't there? We can either accept Jesus' offer, we can believe in him, that, that means trust in him as the, as the only one who has provided the rescue that we need, or we can reject him, we, we cannot believe but, but actually, before we consider which of those two we want to do, we, we ought to note in that verse that if we, if we reject God, then we stand rejected ourselves. We will be condemned already. We are condemned already, verse 18. So we want to make a choice with our eyes open, in, in that sense, don't we? To, to reject God's rescue, to his, his offer of salvation, means that we have to take the consequences of our sin ourselves. We need to pay the penalty for it ourselves. When, when, when God judges the world, then Christ's death on the cross won't cover us if we just continue to reject him. We'll, ha- we'll have to pay for our sin ourselves with, with our death, not his death. In, in other words, we'll be condemned already. We'll be on our own. But, you see, there's another option there, isn't there? And that is simply to believe in Jesus, to trust him, that means, with our eternity. Verse 16, uh, again, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that ever whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, we can move from being condemned to being forgiven. How? Well, by believing, (laughs) By, by trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross to save us. Because you see, it's when you believe in Jesus, so, so when we place our, our faith, our trust in him, it's when we do that that we, we appropriate for ourselves the rescue that God offers us. In other words, we kind of we pick up the gift of rescue that God offers us by trusting in Jesus and what he's done on the cross to achieve it. Does that make sense? And when we do that... We're forgiven, and there's no condemnation. So, friends, those are the, the, the two options, and, and, and there are no others. Um, it's like, uh, it's like in, the, in the, the, the Titanic film. We've, most of us have seen the Titanic film, haven't they? If, if you've seen it, you'll, you'll know that when the, when the ship sailed out of Southampton, that they were effectively two, sort of two kinds of people, two kinds of passengers on board, weren't they? You had your, your first-class passengers. They, they traveled in a kind of uh, opulence and luxury that was sort of unequaled in its day. And, and then there were those people in cattle class, <laughs> weren't they? That they traveled in pretty poor uh, conditions. They, they didn't have the same level of treatment that the wealthy uh, people on, on board had. But after the ship went down, there were a completely two... Uh, completely different two sets of people, weren't there? And it had nothing to do with their wealth or their position or their achievements or whatever. It was simply about whether they perished or whether they were rescued. There were, there were, there were only two lists, weren't there, that were posted outside the offices of the, the White Star Line in, in Southampton. And that was a list of the lost and a list of the saved. And, and friends, what John is saying here is that, that the whole of humanity actually, if you'll pardon the pun, is in the same boat. (laughs) We're either lost or saved. We're either condemned or forgiven. And it all hangs on whether we've either accepted or rejected Jesus' offer of rescue. And friends, that's, that's why it's so important 
that we investigate the claims of Jesus. Because his claim is that he is the only person who can deal with the great problem of humanity. And so we, we need to check him out on this. Um, it's, it's not an interesting religious debate. This is about our eternity and about whether it's an eternity with him or without him. And kind of, you know, when you, when you put it like that, it sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Why, why would anyone reject that offer of life? But actually, John shows us here that, that, that people actually do. That, that's, that's really what verses 19 to 22 are about. Uh, Jesus, look at verse 19. Jesus has come into the world, verse 19, as light into the darkness. A kind of appropriate Halloween <laughs> Uh, metaphor going on here. I mean, you, you remember from last week, we, we saw that John uses light and darkness as metaphors, doesn't he, for good and evil. So Jesus comes as light into the world that is already dark. It's a sinful world. It's a world that's in rebellion against God. It's going its way and, and, and uh, not his way. And just the fact that Jesus is coming as light into that dark world forces a choice on everyone, doesn't it? Will we turn to the light or will we refuse the light and continue to hold on to the darkness? And and tragically, as as John puts it here, that that there are many people, uh, verse 19, who love the darkness rather than the light because their works are are evil. And and they don't want them exposed for, for the evil that they are, verse Verse 20, in other words, they're quite happy living lives that ignore God and push God away. And they want to stay like that. They don't want God to rule their lives. They want to keep ruling them themselves. They want to hang on to that that lordship of their own lives. And they don't want to face up to the fact that to do so, according to Jesus here in verse 20, is actually wicked. It's it's actually hard-hitting stuff here, isn't it, from Jesus. He's not pulling his punches. And, and, and if you're someone who's not already convinced about Jesus' offer of rescue, I wouldn't be at all surprised, actually, if, if claims like this from him didn't, don't make us bristle a bit. You know, may, may, maybe think to ourselves, well, who does this Jesus think he is to, to say things like that? And that is actually a key question, isn't it? Can we trust, should we trust what Jesus says here, or, or, or should we just dismiss it? Because these claims of his, are, they're radical, aren't they? They're, they're far-reaching. They've got huge implications. And, and not just for those who heard them then, but for us as we hear them now. So, so is it right that all these people are listening to Jesus and his claims? And, and so should I be listening to them as well or, or not? I think this is where the final section in this chapter helps us. So we've, we've seen God's rescue. Have a look now. This is verses 22 to, to 36. Have a look now and see God's rescuer. Be, because you'll, you'll see, look, in, in verses yeah, uh, 22 to 36, John the Baptist makes another appearance. Did you, did you notice that? He's, he's appeared once already in, in chapter 1, of course, uh, where he's presented, isn't he, as, a, as an eyewitness to who Jesus is. So he's someone who was there at his baptism, chapter 1, verse 32, um, when, when God himself identified Jesus as his son. 
And in fact, God had told John the Baptist, uh, chapter 1, verse 33, that he would identify his promised king by, by sending his spirit to come and settle on him, which happens, of course, because as, as Jesus is baptized, so the, the heavens open and God's spirit descends on Jesus and a, and a voice uh, from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And, and John the Baptist was the witness to all of this. Uh, the one who could refer people to all the promises of the Old Testament where God had promised to send his king and then point to Jesus and say, yes, he's the one. I've witnessed it for myself. And and that was John the Baptist's mission, really. Verse 7 of chapter 1, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Did you see that's John the Baptist's purpose to be a witness to be someone who points back to God's promises to send a savior king and then points to Jesus and confirms that he's the one and and that's his role here in chapter three as well he's here to authenticate Jesus right to make the claims that he's just made Uh, uh, have a look Uh, you'll see uh, verses 22 to 26 kind of set the scene if you like. So, so Jesus heads off into the, uh, uh, the Judean countryside with his disciples, verse 22. Um, they're, they're no doubt engaging in, in further preaching and teaching and so on, um, but also they're baptizing as well. Although if you, if you look ahead into chapter 4, you'll see it clarified there that actually it was the disciples who were doing the baptizing, not, not Jesus who was. But, but they're about baptism there. And at the same time as Jesus is doing that with his disciples, so John the Baptist, look, verse 23, he's doing the same thing in the same region with his disciples. And, and this evidently kind of causes a bit of a controversy, verse 25, in, initially between a, a, a disciple of John and a, and a local Jew, which in turn leads to a complaint from John's disciple that, that everyone's going to Jesus to get baptized and not to John, uh, verse 26. So you can kind of imagine the, 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 the conversation that's taking place in verse 26, can't you? This sort of cheesed off disciple comes to his rabbi, John the Baptist, and he says, this Jesus that you were with, you know, across the Jordan, the, the one you bore witness to, well, who's he then? Because his disciples are baptizing too, and everyone's going to them and not to us. So, so what's going on? Who's the new guy? And, and why is he getting all the, the baptism action? <laughs> so, so, the, so the key question in, in the face of this competition <laughs> is, is what will John the Baptist say? Well, here's what he says, look, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the, at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this voice of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, verse 25, that, that whatever we have, whatever we've been given, it comes from God, it comes from heaven. And at verse 28, you've, you've, you've all heard me say that I'm not the Christ, I've just been sent ahead of him, I've just been sent before him. In other words, he's saying, there is no competition here. You know, whatever role we have is, is what God gives. I can't be the person that I'm not, and I am not the Christ. I'm just his forerunner. I'm just the one that was sent ahead to point people to him. He's the Christ, not me. 
And, and you'll notice in verse 29, he uses this metaphor again of the bride and the bridegroom. You know, he used it back in chapter 2 as well. And it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor that the, the Old Testament uses to talk about the relationship between God and his people. And, and that God's Messiah, his, his coming king, he's, he's the ultimate bridegroom. He's the one who's coming for his bride, his people, to, to bring them into a restored relationship, which will be like a, a wedding, the wedding to end all, all weddings. That's, that's what the Old Testament imagery is all about. And John here indicates, verse 29, it's Jesus who is the bridegroom. And, and he, John, he's just like the friend of the bridegroom. You know, he's like the best man, if you like. He's not the one who takes the center stage. He's just the one who stands and hears him. Which means, verse 30, that he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. Do you see, in, in, in other words, John's not worried about potential competition. There isn't any competition. Because Jesus is the one. He's the bridegroom. He's God's promised king. He's the Messiah. And so John is happy. His joy is now complete, verse 29, just because Jesus has come. So, so could, can you see, friends, how, how John here once again authenticates Jesus and, and his claims? And, and actually, it doesn't stop there because in the remaining few verses, he shows us why we should take very seriously what, what Jesus says. Have a look at verse 31. Um, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above, he who comes from heaven, is above all. And, and John's he's, he's continuing his comparison of, of Jesus and himself there to, to show why there isn't any competition. And he's making the point that he, John, he's, he's of the earth. He belongs to the earth. And so he speaks in an earthly way. In other words, he's just a normal earthly human guy. Whereas Jesus is the one who comes from above, and so is above all. In other words, Jesus, he's the greatest being in the universe. Jesus originates in heaven. He's superior in, in every way. So, of course, it's going to be Jesus who's the one to, to tell us about God. Verse, verse 32, he, he bears witness to what he's seen and heard. Because Jesus has come from there. So, of course, he's the one to tell us. The problem, verse 32, is not that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. It's not that he isn't trustworthy. But it's the people don't trust him. They don't believe his testimony. Yet, verse 33, those who do receive it, who do believe it, set their seal or, or they certify the fact that it's true. Because, verse 34, the one whom God sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. In other words, Jesus speaks the truth. You should believe him because he speaks the very words of God. And that's because God gives Jesus his spirit without limit. End of verse 34. So that when we hear the words of Jesus, we're hearing truth. Truth from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And why does God do that? Because he loves Jesus, verse 35. And he's given all things into his Hand. Friends, those are quite densely packed verses, I'm aware of that, and I've gone through them quite quickly. But I wonder if you can see the point. Jesus has the right to say the things that he says, to make the claims that we've just heard him make, because as the eternal Son of God, he speaks the very words of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And so, verse 36, when, when Jesus says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When Jesus says that, he has the right to say that because of who he is. Do you see? Because he is the Son, verse 36. He's God's promised king, which means he has the right to say it. And, and friends, this morning, we should be those who listen because our response to him has eternal consequences. R- remember, as, as we've seen, he's the one whose death on the cross is the only thing that changes our status from being condemned already to being saved. And that happens only as we believe in him. So, so look, if, if you're not yet a, a, a Christian this morning, could I urge you to investigate Jesus for yourself? You know, we've got gospels here and books and booklets here to help you do that. We're running a course here at the moment as well called Christianity Explored, which is designed to, to, to help you to do just that. Because I, I hope, as you've seen, it's just too important to ignore. And, and if you're already a Christian this morning, could I urge you to rejoice in this Jesus, this rescue and this rescuer, to look at the cross and to see your saviour there as he gave his life for you and rejoice that you are loved beyond measure. And then, having rejoiced that you are loved beyond measure, go and share that joy with others who also need to know about Jesus. Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you so loved the world that you sent your only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Father, please help us to see for ourselves your rescue and your rescuer and then to respond to him and rejoice in him. And we pray it for your glory's sake. Amen.